1: Some of us have great runways already built for us. If you have one, take off. But if you don't have one, realize it's your responsibility to grab a shovel and build one for yourself and for those who will follow after you. Is a quote from Amelia Earhart, the American aviator, pioneer and author. Amongst her record-setting feats and achievements, she was the first female aviator to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today as our guest, grew up with a keen interest in aviation, became a qualified aeronautical engineer and, like Amelia Earhart, is not one to walk away from a challenge. She's now the CEO of one of the largest defence companies in Australia in a sector that will become a foundation of the Australian economy in years to come. Our guest today is Gabby Costigan, MBE, Chief Executive Officer of BAE Systems Australia. She's also Chair of the Council for Women and Families United by Defence Service and was previously CEO for Linfox International Group. A retired colonel in the Australian Army, she has had a distinguished career, commanding logistic operations for both Australian and US-deployed military forces. In 2019, she was awarded a Most Excellent Order of the British Empire for services to the United kingdom australia relations. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies, and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, we hear of Gabby's experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq, with the coalition forces and how she made the successful transition from the military to the corporate world. We discuss the exciting growth trajectory for the Australian defence industry and how it will shape the country moving forward with the billions being invested into the sector, a beacon of hope in these most challenging of times. The technology is being developed in our backyard that will give Australian industry and Australians a competitive advantage. So sit back and enjoy the new future. Gabby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What was it like growing up in a military family, Gabby?
0: Oh, Well, it was fun, I guess, is how I'd probably put it, Exciting lots of adventures I'm one of five girls so my father was in the army my grandparents etc so a long history of a military family okay but yeah I mean for me it it was always an adventure my dad you know got posted every couple of years and yeah. and my parents I think tried to make each posting exciting for us something different it was fun
1: and which unit or which regiment was your father in
0: My dad was in the Corps of Engineers. I was in the Corps of Royal Australian Electrical Mechanical Engineers.
1: So when you've travelled around the world and all around the back and beyond of Australia, what made you sign up and pursue a career in the military as well?
0: Well, I think my dad, he loved the Army, and Mm -hmm. I think every day that he came home, he was always so positive about what he did. And it sounded, you know, to, to a kid, it was an adventure. You know, he was always outside doing stuff. He was on exercise. He was... You know traveling internationally, so to a kid, it seemed like a pretty exciting job he was he was fit, he wasn't stuck in an office all day, if you like, so I think when I was little watching what your parents do anyway, I think guides you you know into sort of the the areas that you you think might be fun for working as well and I think that that's what it was for me
1: so what were the stepping stones into the military career?
0: Uh, I think you know once i once I decided that the military was definitely what I wanted, and it was always the army. And specifically early on, I wanted to be in Army aviation. I had this desire, I think, for a long time to want to be a helicopter pilot. And my dad, some of his colleagues were helicopter pilots in the Army. And so when I was younger, that's all I wanted to do was wanted to fly helicopters. But at that time, uh, women weren't allowed to fly helicopters. So I was pretty disappointed when I found that out, Mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And so my father was an engineer. And so I I decided, well, if, if I couldn't fly them, I'd fix them so that sort of put me on the path to engineering and I think then I decided right well I want to join and I want to be an engineer and yeah and that was that was kind of the stepping stones and then you know I I applied I got accepted and my army life began.
1: Not easy to get into and also not easy to stand above your peers so what what do you think stood you out Gabby in in building your career in the army because in doing my homework I've made cause a lot of officers you've you know in the past all speak very very highly of you so what do you think made you stand out?
0: You know, I don't know. I think probably my my confidence, is, I think, certainly helps. You know, I grew up in a family where, you know, my parents always told us that we could we could do whatever we wanted and but as long as you worked hard and you made the most of opportunities that were presented to you, which I think I've done throughout my career, you know, you've certainly got to work hard, uh, no question. I'd like to think that I have a very good, strong work ethic and I've I have worked hard my whole life, but I've also made the most of opportunities when they've been presented to me. You know, I think maybe that's, that's helped with my success. It's also important, I think, through your career to have sponsors. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to work for some amazing people through, throughout my career who have certainly helped me uh, in my career and, and my, my path to where I am now. You know, you learn a lot from those sponsors, but those sponsors also help you either through exposure to things that you may not normally see in your in the role you're in, or introductions to different people, et cetera. You know, so I think it's a mix of of hard work, bit of confidence, a bit of luck, you know, and uh, and just making the most of opportunities.
1: So, what were the highlights when you look back? I guess you fond memories of your career in the
0: army. Oh gosh, there's so many. You know, I, I love the army. I really did. And one of the great things for me was, you know, I got to really work all over the world. To be honest, I think the biggest highlight for me was absolutely deploying on operations. There's nothing more satisfying, I think, for any military officer or or soldier or airman, airwoman, et cetera, to deploy, you know, in support of your country. So that was incredible. It It was an incredible opportunity. It was exciting. And, you know, you spend your whole life training for, for that moment. And, and then, you know, to actually go and, and be a part of it was very satisfying. I, I was really lucky too with my military career. I, I had lots of great postings, lots of great jobs. I got to see the world. I got to work with coalition partners and I got to work for some great leaders.
1: Look, when you, when you get that final test, Gabby, as you say, you put into, into operations. How did you perform compared to all the training?
0: Well, I'd like to think I did pretty well. <laughs> the training is just makes you do your job. You, that's what you're doing. You're doing your job every day. So, and the one thing that the military does is train you exceptionally well to be yeah. able to ensure that in any situation you're able to carry out your role or function. I think I was able to do that. And, you know, importantly, you're part of a team. So everybody's doing their bit. And I just did my bit as well.
1: And and that and the locations that you were, you're spending time in ops, you want to talk us through a bit of a story on that?
0: Oh yeah, sure. So when I when I first deployed to Afghanistan, you know, I went there uh, and I ran the logistic operations in Kandahar. At the time it was transitioning from a US-led operation to a, a NATO-led operation. So I did a lot of work in uh, in Kandahar and also in, in Taran Count, supporting at the time the Special Forces, because this was before the engineers and the infantry units came in. You know, I, I was also fortunate to do some time in Iraq, again, just supporting some of the logistic operations there. Later on, when I worked with the United States military, I had a posting to Central Command. You know, I had again had an opportunity to go in and out of operations, both in a, in a couple of different places in the Middle East. So, you know, very broad and varied roles over the years, predominantly focused on logistics with a little bit of engineering support to uh, the Chinook fleet when I was first deployed to Afghanistan.
1: And where does, it, where does it stand with women now in exposure in operations? Now, I think you said earlier you weren't allowed to fly helicopters. What's changed?
0: Oh, it's changed enormously. I mean, you know, we're, <laughs> we're talking well over 20 years ago when I first joined you know i think the military now is you know a fantastic place for for young women you know i don't really think there's any restrictions on them anymore which is fantastic and i do encourage you know young women today if they if they're thinking about a you know, their careers that the military is a, is a great place to start and yeah so i think they're very lucky now there's not really any restrictions and and it's great to see that over the years the different chiefs of the defence force you know, have have tried really hard yes. to adapt and modernise. I think the defence force to ensure that there are no restrictions or gender anymore. And
1: look, and speaking of international opportunities, what was the biggest difference for you between working in the Australian Defence Force and the exposure you had with the the US Central Command?
0: Scale. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say that's uh, probably the biggest difference. The United States military is just enormous. I mean, it was a f- absolutely fantastic opportunity for me to be posted there. Yes. I was really fortunate with the job that I went there to do. It was not the job I was actually posted there to do, but just the opportunity to work, you know, with the United States military uh, was, was fantastic for me. And, you know, and to be honest, I I think the opportunities that came subsequent to me in my professional life, uh, was certainly enhanced by the opportunity that I had working with the United States government there. It's so big and the, the role that I had was very challenging and it exposed me, I think, to, to lots of different areas, not just the military, other agencies, you know, industry. And, uh, yeah, I guess it, it sort of it helped me also with my decision to leave the Army as well. Okay. It probably sounds a little crazy to say, you know, I had... Was having such a great time and it was a great job yeah. but it 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 also did help me make that decision because the idea of returning back to the Australian army into a role that was going to be much much smaller probably didn't excite me as much if that makes sense so it was um you know it was a it was a good point in my career to say I've had a fantastic military career everything i'd done was was exciting and and great and but I knew that I needed, a, you know, a bigger challenge. And so that was the, that was the time where I, I said, right, time to do something else.
1: Okay. You want to talk us through the next steps in, your, in the career and how do they all come about?
0: Yeah. You know, I guess things happen and you, you make decisions, you know, about, about what are the next steps. As I said, I'd had a wonderful military career. I loved it. And, you know, it was that opportunity, I guess, that I had in the United States to leave the Army and stay in the United States and take up an opportunity there in, in the aerospace industry. Okay. So I'm an aeronautical engineer, my background, and you know, I was fortunate, I guess, in that role that I was approached quite frequently by industry at the time for opportunities. And they honestly they'd never really drove me to think I want to get out of the army because I I loved what I was doing. But when it was time to return to Australia, I thought, no, I've got to do this, it's the right time. It was a great opportunity for me to, to leave the military on a high and then also to enter industry in quite a senior role. So that was very exciting. So I, I worked for an, an aviation company, but it was also really challenging to, you know, leaving the military. I went into a company that was owned by private equity. I had no idea about any of that when I first got out. So a lot of challenges, but the right decision for me.
1: And what were you tasked to deliver in that first role outside of the defence force when you made the move into a private equity-backed company?
0: Well, it was I was tasked, I guess, to to grow their military business, their military aviation business, both domestically in the United States and internationally. And I think that was part of the reason that I was brought on was because I had worked with so many international partners, if you like, and I had quite a network internationally that you know they saw an opportunity to maximise the network that I had, and so I was brought in to to grow that business. It was exciting. It was really fun because it was something very different, uh, you know, to what I had done in the military. But all of the things that I'd learnt in the military were very adaptable in business. Probably some of the the challenges for me, though, you know, in that role, that first role was getting the commercial experience, understanding how business worked. You know, it's a pretty high-pressure Environment when you're working with that private equity in the United States, and it's it was also quite cutthroat, which was something I probably wasn't used to. Um, you know, I was very much used to being in a team and working as a team. Uh, you know, whereas my my first exposure or foray into into business was a lot more aggressive.
1: And did it surprise you? I guess maybe opened your eyes up in, in particularly United States. How many ex military officers move into business? compared to what you may see in Australia, the real crossover?
0: Yes. The the thing that I I guess I've found is a lot of military officers that retire don't stray too far from what they know. You know, it's a comfortable thing for you to do. You know, you go into business, you know, that's why you see so many in defence industry. And that's a good thing. You know, you want people who have got that background and experience because it, it, it helps with your own business. You know, in the United States, again, I mean, the scale of the military is so large, so it's not unusual to see people moving into into business, and and quite often people will join, you know, join the military at eighteen. They'll have a twenty year career, and so they're still very young. To you know, they've still got another twenty thirty years of of career left in them. So of course they're going to want to do something different. I was exactly the same.
1: What brought you back to Australia then? BAE. Okay, you want to, but there was a stepping stone in between there. There was there was a, there was a time in Asia, wasn't there?
0: Oh, yeah, there was a very fun and exciting time in Asia. I, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to be selected as the Chief Executive Officer for Linfox uh, for their international business, and that was a huge highlight in my career and a fantastic opportunity. And, you know, I had three and a half years working in Asia. I lived in Bangkok, and I ran a business across 10 countries uh, in Asia, big business, 17,000 employees. Very complex. Mm-hmm. You know, I think most of your listeners will, will certainly know Lynn Fox is an organisation. Very much so. Yeah, so it, it, that was a great opportunity for me. And that was, my, that was my first chief executive role and I loved it and I learned so much, you know, and it, it was a great opportunity. But, you know, like anything, I worked hard there. I delivered what the Fox family asked me to. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, my next opportunity came when, uh, when BAE Systems asked me if I would be interested in coming to work for them.
1: Interesting, you've gone from the military, you've gone to private equity-backed, private family or private business, and now you've gone to a UK-listed, large-scale international corporate. How have you sort of made the moves and fit it in so well?
0: I don't know. <laughs> I ask myself that all the time. Yeah, look, you know, I've, I certainly haven't had any kind of traditional path to to my role, but every every experience... I think just adds to your professional development and you know so for me the the opportunity to work in private equity taught me some things you take what you learn in each role like I guess and add that if you like to, to your arsenal of professional skills each company has been very different as I as I was saying earlier I guess for you know with private equity there were some experiences that I had there that were quite challenging initially for me coming out of the military as I said you know and with lin fox it again a fantastic company great opportunity for me there to lead that business and grow that business and to work across so many different cultures it was very exciting but again when it's a family owned business you know there's different drivers around the decisions that are made for the organization what they invest in etc because at the end of the day it's, it's it's the fox family's money so their approach to to business is a little different because the family is the shareholder, you know, and and how the boards work are different across all the different organisations I've been in and now working for a FTSE listed company, you know, again, a, diff, a different opportunity again. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you're leading an organisation, your job is to, to grow that business and ensure that you've got a sustainable business. And now my focus has to be on sustaining my, my business, but also ensuring that my shareholders get a return.
1: So, for the benefit of the audience out there, and I have been, we've all been reading the papers of late as well, but do you want to talk through what is BAE Systems and what are you delivering in Australia?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, BAE Systems is the largest defence company in Australia. And I think in simplest terms, you know, we provide equipment and services to support the Australian Defence Force. And it's the equipment that they need to do what they do, and that's keep us safe and look after our national interests. So what do we do? We upgrade and maintain equipment, ships, aircraft, a whole range of different systems that the Australian Defence Force uses. For those, I guess, of your listeners that don't really know much about the military, I guess, you know, you could sort of think of it as how you service a car just on a really big scale. So we do that with, uh, with ships and aircraft. The company is also a leader in the development of technologies and we do that in collaboration with Defence and obviously, you know, with the end goal there of being able to provide the Australian Defence Force with a capability edge, we are totally Australian facing. Everything we do is for the Australian Defence Force. We've been operating in Australia for almost 70 years. We're, we are also unique in that, we're, as you said before, we're we're part of a global defence company. So there's great opportunity there for, for me leading this business to be able to draw on the experiences that we have with the UK and, and United States businesses as well. You know, but I I think most importantly, you know, being the biggest defence company in Australia, we also have an enormous supply chain, you know, made up of, you know, some 1,500 Australian SMEs and we spend an enormous amount of money with those businesses, 300 million plus annually, which is great for our economy. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think that kind of covers what we do.
1: So Gabby, if I look at sort of the economy, the scale of the numbers the government is looking to spend in defence. Am I right where they're saying $270 billion over the next 10 years? Is that, is that yeah, reasonably that accurate? that is right. Okay. Um,
0: and that is very exciting, as you can imagine.
1: And what's driving that, Gabby? Is it catch-up? Is it because of the state of where the world is at at the moment? you want to sort of share a bit of your view on that?
0: Well, look, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a couple of different factors. The government recently, or well, the Defence Force recently, released the force structure plan, and, you know, that, That identifies within it, you know, a number of areas where they they want to invest, if you like, and acquire new technologies and and platforms. You know, $270 billion over the next 10 years is an enormous amount of money, you know, and when you said catch up before, it's not about catch up, I don't think so much, but it's just about reinvesting in the technologies that are needed today to ensure that our Defence Force can do its job.
1: And and how does that compare? I guess the investment in defence, Gabby, compared to like you said, you've had experience in Asia compared to our, our neighbours.
0: Uh, you know, I I think the Australian Defence Force right now is is focused on ensuring that they have the best capability and they've got that capability edge. Um, you know, certainly our security environment is changing and will continue to change. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's important that our defence force is equipped to do its job and I think the government is doing the right thing now to ensure that we are equipped or the Defence Force is equipped to be able to carry out their role. The investment that is being made will obviously also help with, you know, stimulating the economy, which is incredibly important right now as we're, you know, facing a recession first time in a long, long time. You know, so, I, I, you know, Defence I think has been one of those areas where the investment that is going to be made in sovereign technologies and Australian companies is incredibly important because it will stimulate our economy and it will help in the in the coming years.
1: So one of the, one of the areas you're charged with is the Hunter Class Frigate Program, is so that correct? Yes. You're, and you want to talk us through a little bit more about that and, as you say, what that will mean to the respective states who are taking investment in this area?
0: Sure. So the Hunter Class Frigate Program is... Such an exciting program. It's amazing. And, you know, probably one of the highlights of my career was was, uh, getting the phone call that night from the government to say that uh, the BAE Systems had been successful and won the Hunter Class Frigate Program. So the frigates or the Hunter Class Frigates, they are the world's most advanced global combat ship. You know, and it's combining anti-air warfare and anti-submarine warfare into a single warship. Mm. The, uh, the Hunter-class frigate is based on the UK Type 26 frigate, but it's got some, you know, specific changes that the Australian customer um, has asked for. Thousands of Australian companies uh, will participate in this program that will go for decades. You know, again, fantastic opportunity for Australians uh, to be involved in this program. You know, and I think our challenge with this program is to provide products and technologies that will ensure that the hunter-class frigates are world-class submarine hunters. The opportunities, I think you asked me about where where it was going to be built, it's being built in in South Australia at Osborne and the facilities that we have there are world-class as well. So we're very fortunate, again, the investment that the government and defence have made in that shipbuilding our facility at Osborne, really phenomenal, world-class and exciting too because the way we're going to build these ships is very different to how ships have been built in the past. You know, the technologies I think that are being developed now uh, basically mean that we, we have a digital ship, you know, which is pretty exciting.
1: So what, is that, what does that actually mean to people out there?
0: Yeah, sure. So it's the first bow to stern digitally designed warship you know and that's important for many reasons obviously configuration management makes it much easier if it's digital but you know this is a three nation program as well because both the british and canada have also acquired a type 26 version if you like for their for their different navies you know so because it is digitally designed uh, what that means is you know if there are any changes to the reference design things can be updated instantly effectively So everybody then is working off of the same design. But, you know, as I was talking before around the the shipyard, we're not only designing the ship digitally, but we're also changing the face of traditional shipbuilding methods in Australia. So, you know, I think importantly with digital shipbuilding, you know, the aim is to try to run a digital thread, if you like, sort of from the design process through manufacturing and sea trials right through to how we'll sustain the ship in the future. So basically, digital technologies are going to underpin continuous naval shipbuilding and the development of new sovereign industrial capability in our country, you know, which is pretty exciting. So, you know, when you think about, I think when people probably think about shipbuilding, they probably think of, you know, sheet metal workers outside, you know, bashing metal, working, you know, very hands-on type, sort of image I think people have you know and that's still certainly a key part but you know we're learning from other industries particularly the automotive industry and we're now incorporating if you like cutting edge technologies that have never been used in shipyards before so all of the advances in technologies and and manufacturing equipment you know have certainly made things a lot easier um, a lot faster with automation and the like, and and certainly more precise, I think the traditional shipbuilders, you know, are also the, the Australian traditional shipbuilders are also pretty excited about this new future. And we've actually we worked with the government and defence, you know, on a reskilling program for, for many of our shipbuilders, and was very exciting for us. We've taken fifty shipbuilders out of the yard, and we've we've worked with Flinders University in Adelaide to create a new digital technology diploma for them, which is pretty exciting. You know, it's the first ever digital shipbuilding course and Flinders University have been a great partner for us there. So we've got, you know, 50 shipbuilders who are being retrained again, which is fantastic.
1: So is it a total of nine nine frigates? Is that what's going to be built?
0: Yes, nine frigates in Australia, yes.
1: Over what period of time?
0: Many decades. <laughs>
1: Okay, the only reason I ask that Gabby is like all of us who read the newspaper and see the submarines and we see the number which seems to be getting bigger and bigger on a daily basis. Is this going to come in on time and on budget?
0: Yes it is. Absolutely. Look, I mean this is a it's a very complex program there's no question and it's yep. a high risk program and and I think both the government and our customer recognize that it is a complex and high risk program. But we've got thousands of people who are working very hard every day to ensure that we deliver on our commitments for our customer. You know, we've got some cardinal dates, you know, of some key milestones that we have to achieve. And I'm very happy and proud to say that we're on track for those right now, with probably one of the exciting ones coming up at the end of this year, which will be where we commence prototyping on the ship.
1: So I guess the upside then for those living in South Australia... There's going to be a whole new technology focus in, in, that, in that state, isn't there? Because you've got uh, the space <laughs> yeah. agency program.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's there's clearly enormous benefit for South Australia you know, with the investment that is that is being made in that state, and I think the the Premier Stephen Marshall also doing some great things to support the growth in South Australia there. But, you know, the thing to remember about this program is it's not just South Australia that will benefit from from the Hunter Class Frigate Program. The whole nation will benefit. We have engineers deployed all over Australia that are working on that program. Yes, there are certain roles that have to be done in the shipyard in Adelaide, but there's a lot of other supporting infrastructure, if you like, that happens all over Australia. You know, we're developing engineering hubs in Victoria, um, you know, that are working on uh, those cutting-edge technologies that I was talking about there. You know, we've got other opportunities, you know, across our business uh, supporting the Hunter program as well.
1: Yeah, we've got a uh, bit of research for what I wanted to just put to you get your thoughts on. Earlier this year, a BAE system spokesman said that the company has the confidence that we will be able to achieve well north of 60% Australian industry content over the life of the Hunter Class Frigate program. I thought that the ANZAC ships, the hunter-class frigate, is ultimately designed to replace, achieved nearly 80% from, from correct in the Australian New Zealand industry content in the program against the original contract, we were saying about 70%. So I guess this is the question. Why is the level of Australian industry content potentially lower in BAE's hunter-class, a vessel that should be delivered over, say, 30-plus years, than the ANZAC? set where it was originally set at 54 but came in around about 60, north of 60%. I guess it's, as an Australian, I'm, just, and I'm hearing the Canadians have got their focus, the Brits have got their focus. Is that, is that accurate or is that inaccurate, that, that summary?
0: I don't know that I could call it accurate or inaccurate. Um, some, of it, some of it is certainly uh, correct and factual. Look, I mean, you know, the job that we, that we have is to build a continuous naval shipbuilding community in Australia. Our government is very focused on ensuring that we have a sovereign capability and my job and my team's job, as I said before when we were talking about supply chain, is to ensure that we have as many Australian suppliers working on this program as we can. The government is very focused on ensuring that we exceed any targets that are set for us and you would have seen recently Minister Price has just put out an announcement around you know, that that very clear focus on, on AIC. You know, there will be changes to the terms and conditions for future contracts. There will be audits done of primes to ensure, you know, that we are meeting those commitments. That's absolutely what we want to do. You know, I mean, as an Australian company, I want, you know, to build this industrial capability here in Australia. I want to provide opportunities for as many Australian companies as we can. And I think, you know, my company in particular, BA Systems, we've got an incredibly good track record of working with Australian suppliers, you know, and over the three decades, we'll be building these ships and then sustaining them into the future. The opportunities are enormous for Australian businesses.
1: Question for you as a CEO, one of the things that obviously, as you said, is we're talking about the costs. Is there going to be a scarcity of labour or skill in Australia? Bearing in mind, you've got the submarines being built down the road. You've got, as you say, down this new technology. Are we going to be short on high-quality labour to deliver?
0: Well, obviously, that's a, certainly a concern for me with my job. And when I when I look out, you know, for the future of our programs, I mean, one of the great things about Defence is, you know, that's very different to some of the other businesses I've been in is the contracts are very long. Yeah. You know, so you've got sort of that visibility, if you like, or runway to sort of to understand what you need in terms of a workforce to be able to do your job you know there are certainly some areas of risk you know some some key skills some critical skills if you like across different parts of our business and it's not just in the shipbuilding it's across the whole business yes you know but but our job is to ensure that we're working you know with academia with the tafe colleges et cetera, to ensure that we are, we're developing that pipeline of you know of future employees my, my business alone, just in the three years that I've been with BAE Systems, it's, it's grown by 1,500 employees in that time, and it's going to continue to grow, you know, and we will certainly face challenges with so many big defence programs happening in the next decade. But again, it's working closely with defence, you know, with other industries and with the government to ensure that we're building the right pipeline there to ensure that our, our future needs are met.
1: We've been doing our own research and looking at the broader play in Australia. In, in regards to the defence industry, and, and looking at the numbers, I understand exactly what you're talking about and the significance of the program and what it's going to achieve. But is the local defence industry going backwards in this country?
0: No, you really don't believe not.
1: it, okay? All right. Um
0: No, you know, I would say if anything, you know, Australian companies now they've got so much more opportunity now, and I think there's more confidence too in the Australian industry because they've been delivering so well for their customer over the years and I think there's now more acknowledge- acknowledgement too that we don't have to go offshore you okay. know to to buy the capability or the talent because we do have it here in Australia and certainly with the investment over the next decade of 270 billion dollars by the government yes. is it's certainly not declining it's growing
1: and what are we actually good at then Gabby are we are we sharp on the innovation are we sharp on Execution, what are we really good at at this stage?
0: Yeah, look I, we're good at a lot of things. Innovation, certainly, it's a good buzzword innovation, <laughs> but we do have some incredibly talented people in Australia who who are developing amazing technologies you know that are world leading, certainly in the defense industry, in my company. Mm. you know um, I've got some brilliant people who've been working on some some programs you know over the years, like John, you know is a good example, again, world leading technology some of the development of, of weapon systems, again, things that probably are not talked about a lot. Defence is not really very, very good, if you like, about boasting about what we are good at, you know, but there's a lot of, a lot of countries out there who, who do look to Australia for, for innovation. Another thing we're very good at is advanced manufacturing. We've got some incredible examples in defence industry here in Australia, you know, where we've invested and we've grown those capabilities we work on a global program, the F thirty five aircraft. Yes, uh, you know it's a Lockheed Martin platform, but there's many, many companies involved in in developing that platform. And and here in Australia, you know, my my business builds the vertical tails for that for that platform for the whole international fleet. You know, which is pretty exciting to be involved in.
1: So, are we seeing enough graduates coming out of universities thinking I might enter a career in defence?
0: We're not seeing enough. You know, and again, I think that comes back to. Uh, defence and defence industry doing more on our marketing and and brand presence, if you like, I think one of the challenges that that defence industry has is, you know, I I often say that we're in the shadows too much. People need to know and understand, you know, what amazing jobs there are available, the different technologies that are being developed, you know, the capabilities, so many exciting things that happen in defence, you know, and we've just got to get out there and talk more about those successes and particularly to, to high school kids, you mm-hmm. know, to get them to understand the opportunities that are available to them, you know, either, either in defence or defence industry. Specifically for, for me with defence industry, 60% of my business is uh, STEM related. So we do a lot of work trying to educate, you know, younger school communities of the importance of STEM. And what those opportunities are you know if I, if I could do it again, and I was a kid again, and I tell my own children this there's so many great things happening across the breadth of defense industry right now, and you can see a career for for decades you know in defense, and you know one of the great things I think for engineers or, or technologists is the breadth of of projects that are happening you know engineers like to follow the exciting. Technologies that are happening. There's just so many, you know. So there's just so much opportunity there.
1: And in this world of diversity, what's the numbers look like at the top end of the decision making in the world of the defence for women?
0: Well, I would say there's not enough women in the very senior roles across defence industry. Defence itself, I think, has changed uh, significantly. There's some really great examples of some very successful senior uh, women leaders in defence. Uh, you know, in the in the star ranks. Uh, which is great to see. Unfortunately, there's not enough women in executive roles across defence industry, you know. But we're we're constantly trying to change that, and I think everybody wants it. It's just ensuring that the the pipeline is there, you know, and being able to provide those opportunities for women to continue to be promoted within their careers and have those executive roles.
1: So, Gabby, it goes to the next question then. From your perspective, what is leadership?
0: Yes. I think leadership to me is about authenticity, you know, trying to be someone you're not is not a sustainable position, you know, and I think you can quickly get found out. For me, I bring my core values into my professional life and I think these drive my leadership principles, you know, and I think the principles that I also expect of the people that I work with. You know and I think some of those core values you know they're the things you learn when you're a kid and they they carry you whole way through through your life you know integrity trust, courage loyalty and passion certainly I think they're the foundations on which I lead BA Systems Australia. I think I also try very hard to create a, a positive fun, An inspiring environment for people to work in. And and I certainly encourage, you know, my executive and senior leaders to try to implement the same atmosphere throughout the company. You know, that that all goes to the company culture. You know, obviously, I I really want to be able to create a diverse, strong um, and high-performing team, you know, to deliver on, on our vision and strategy for the business. Yeah, and, I, you know, I think as a leader, I probably draw perspective from, you know, my broader experiences mean, both the military, you know, previous roles that I've had and also from my family, um, you know, and I, I think having a sense of realism, you know, I think that helps to sort of balance both my competitive nature, but also remind me of the importance of the work that we do you know and i think that helps to keep me grounded and help me make better decisions
1: and how has the challenges of 2020 with covid-19 affected your your leadership or has it
0: oh, i don't think it's affected my leadership okay. um, i think it's been it's certainly been a very challenging year if anything for me i think it's just reinforced you know how resilient we are as a nation and also you know for my own organization it has certainly impacted some things significantly across the business. Our companies and, you know, we work internationally. There's a lot of travel that happens and obviously that's all stopped. You know, we've, we've got 42 sites across this country. You know, we've got fly-in, fly-out workforces. So there's been a number of challenges we've had there. We've got global supply chains. So we've had some impacts like many other businesses and industries as well. I think... You know, from a leadership perspective, though, you know, COVID has meant that I've had to adapt my style, if you like, in a few ways, you know, because that, you know, being able to walk around a shipyard or, or go to an aircraft hangar, I can't do that at the moment. No. And I've got, you know, a significant amount of my workforce who are working from home. I had to think about how do I communicate now with my with my company and ensure, you know, not only the safety of my employees and their health and well-being, But just ensuring that we could still deliver for our customer. So I've done that a couple of different ways. You know, I communicate weekly with the whole company in a video log. That again, authentic self in that video (laughs) log each week, you know, and that's been amusing, I think, for many people, whether my kids walk in, you know, (laughs) in the middle of videos, dogs barking, construction, all those sorts of things. And I think that helps too for people to see that COVID is impacting everybody. You know, we've all we've all had to adapt and change to be able to continue to to do what we do. But there's also been some really good positives out of it as well from a business perspective. You know, we've got, I think, really close collaboration with both the government and our customer now as, you know, as part of not just the pandemic response, but just ensuring that that we're able to continue to deliver and, and provide that capability.
1: I had a I had a call last night. It was quite it was quite late and it was from a chief exec of an ASX listed company, big company who's reviewing their key executive team, the key members of the executive team, came to the conclusion that we've got to make some serious change here, that I'm looking for a different style of person, and gave me an analogy that we're almost in, in their thinking like a wartime. I've got to go and compete. And if I look at what happened during World War II, Prime Minister Churchill created a wartime cabinet. I needed decisions to be made. I needed a different style of character to stand up to be counted on. Are you thinking differently about the type of people you are going to employ? You said you've you've brought on 1500 but what are you looking for now? What's the sort of the skill set and the mindset that you're seeking? Because we're living in a world of uncertainty for at least another 12-24 months.
0: If I think about my leadership team, number one, I, I want team players, you know. I'm I'm running an enterprise with my business, and I need people who can work in a team, and can bring a team together, and can lead in challenging and complex times. You know, I, I'm not so fixed on you know the CV of have you ticked the right boxes in terms of the degree that you've got and all those sorts of things. It's about experience. It's about yeah. your values. It's about what do you bring to the team and to the business. When you're talking about your your executive team number 1 you've got to be able to work together and and that is really important for me because i depend on them you know i depend on their experience i i you know i depend on on their knowledge and i depend on their leadership that they're also passing the right messages down through the organization and leading their teams to be exemplar as well i don't know that i'm necessarily looking looking for anything different okay. i'm just looking for someone who's going to be the right fit you know but as i said there's not some magical unicorn if you like that i'm you know that i that i want to find 10 of them and have them as my executive everybody brings different things to the table so it's it's ensuring that you can surround yourself with the people who are going to fill the gaps that i that i have and help me deliver my vision and strategy for the business
1: and your role is dealing with big scale projects gabby so how do you I guess so how do you assess risk as a CEO, and encourage others to take the necessary risk when when required?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. You know, we do manage very large programs, but we also have a number of very small programs. You know, we've got over two hundred contracts with defence. You know, and they can range from a couple of million dollars to billions of dollars of programs. Yep. I think it's about understanding the context through intelligence gathering from as many sources as possible so that you can understand more clearly the situation, you know, and evaluate that risk. My business has very robust systems and processes in place that support me. So it's important to ensure that you've got the right governance in place, you know, and you need the right culture also in the organisation that allows you support and, and trust your leaders, you know, as I talked about earlier. You know, we were just talking about COVID before and I think COVID is a good example, you know, of a situation that has required an extraordinary level of risk management, you know, and which to date, you know, I'd like to say in my business, I think has been very well managed, you know, within the company. It has certainly tested our operational resilience, you know, and our people. If I talk about the big contracts, it requires you, you know, going from small contracts to big contracts, it requires you to think, think differently, if you like, to be more strategic, but also to keep, you know, continuing to deliver on those, uh, you know, on those smaller contracts.
1: You've worked in, as you said earlier, the military, you've worked in private equity, it has its its own set of pressure. You've worked for a family organization, but also has its own set of pressure. You're now working with an organization which is billing. People like me, because ultimately I'm the taxpayer paying for these frigates. What does that bring a certain pressure to you in the sense oh, I have to deliver for for this country? Is there a different pressure at all?
0: Uh, yes, I, I would say yes. There is definitely added pressure, but at the same time, you've got to remember that the Australian government puts tenders into the market you know, every week defence companies bid on. It's a very competitive process and throughout that process there's a very high level of public and political scrutiny, mm. if you like, you know, and obviously my job is, you know, I'm committed to provide the Australian government with the best value for every dollar that it invests in defence programs. But, you know, it, it is one of those things that, that you, you are constantly thinking about you know ensuring as i said that that we are providing the best value for money for our customer
1: you talked earlier about the, the the partnership or with the government but also how south australia is is taking a bit of a lead i guess in the focus around technology what are the new technologies that you guys are investing in is it going to, is it going to be far more focused in ai or which which way are we headed as one just the to to an understanding of technology the second part is to understand the sustainability of building as you say, a workforce outside of defence?
0: Look, we're investing in lots of different technologies at the moment. AI is certainly one of them, but we've already developed, I think, some world-leading technologies in Australia. Some areas that we're very focused on at the moment are autonomous systems, high-speed weapons, also surveillance systems, high-frequency systems as well. But, you know, we've got, I think, a really good legacy um, already in Australia in terms of the technology development that we've done in BA Systems, um, we've, and we're obviously trying to leverage that, you know, to provide new capabilities. It is a, it's a very exciting part of our business, actually.
1: And you talked earlier about uh, the increased investment in Australia over the horizon. You talked about the anti-submarine warfare, the design of the boat. What does that actually mean for people out there who don't quite understand? Does that mean this is a stealth boat never been built before?
0: Probably the easiest way to describe it is it's a submarine hunter. You know, it's, it's a ship uh, that is there to hunt submarines. It's probably the most basic description I could give you.
1: <laughs> and should we be worried there's a fair few submarines floating offshore we should be hunting?
0: I would say that there's probably a lot of submarines operating all over the world uh, for, for different governments.
1: Gabby, where is the world at the moment in regards to the whole escalation of defence? What's the plays being made on the, on the chessboard?
0: Look, the security environment, you know, internationally is certainly changing and it will continue to change every day. I think the important thing, you know, for, for Australians and for, for our government is to, to understand that, you know, the Australian government places significant investment that they're making in defence and those capabilities just to ensure, number one, that our Australian Defence Force can do their job. The Defence White Paper, if you like, of 2016, I think that was a really pivotal document. It set the scene, if you like, for an environment of significant change and uncertainty in the future. You know, I think we're starting to see now, you know, from a national security perspective, a, mm. a bit of a wind down in, in the operations that were happening in the Middle East and and now maybe more of a pivot or a focus on the Pacific region. You know, the threat environment has certainly escalated. And I I think it's important that we just ensure that we continue to invest in our Defence Force and the capabilities that they have so that they can do their job to protect us and our national interests.
1: And and Gabby, in your role in engaging with, with other businesses, other corporates, do you think the Australian boardrooms really understand in depth what is actually going on out there in regards to the military plays? regards to the cyber attacks, regards to governments throwing their weight around and how we're responding and the need for people like yourself and this defense industry to be built?
0: Look, I, I would say that there are, you know, a lot of business people out there who are who are incredibly educated about what is happening in the world. And they need to be, because you know, potentially those things will impact their, their, their businesses that they're running and operating. But but could directors and and chairmen and etc learn more? Absolutely, you know it's important. Uh, I think for for all Australians to understand number one what our what our government is doing, you know the relationships that we have with with other countries, you know to be clear on on what our government's policies are, you know. So I think yes, we can always learn more and be better informed. But overall, I th- I think Australians you know, have a good understanding, you know, of what our Defence Force does, you know, and recently you've seen the Defence Force in the news a lot more because they're helping in, in many ways on the domestic front, you know, the support to the bushfires and the support to the COVID pandemic, I think has been great and important for people to see that the Department of Defence has many roles, but ultimately their job is to protect us and our national interests, as I said before.
1: One last question on, on just on relationships. You'd spent time in the U S you spent time as a CEO in, in Asia and then across the different countries in Asia. Do we, do we take enough time as a country now to build in building those relationships? Do you think?
0: Yeah, look, I think we do. That's the one great thing about Australians, I think we we are really good at making friends internationally. And you know, and I think it's it is a key focus of our government to ensure that we're building the right relationships with with all of our international colleagues and and countries. You know, it's obviously a key focus for Maurice Payne in her role and you know, and she I think does an exceptional job in in developing those relationships and and the same with Simon Birmingham in trying to keep focused on the best trade relationships for our nation as well. So, look, I, I would say I think we're good at it. And it's an important thing for us to continue to do.
1: In regards to what other things has been thrown out from the pandemic, i.e. we've closed our internal borders, we've closed our external borders. How's that hurting you in BAE?
0: Yeah, it's been challenging, uh, no question. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, we, we operate yep. all over the country. You know, so having those uh, border restrictions in place has just meant that we've had to work around the challenges. I mean, you know, we're not the only ones facing this problem. Everybody is. But I think the great thing is, is everybody's embraced technology. I don't think I've ever done so many Zooms, video conferences, WebExes, you know, et cetera. And I think we've also been clever in how we have used technology to help us solve some of these problems, you know, at the end of the day, those borders are closed to protect us and to ensure the safety of Australians. We don't want this pandemic, you know, to, to continue to go on and, and we all want our lives to go back to to what they were and, and have those freedoms but, you know, at the moment we've got to ensure the safety of all Australians and if that means putting some restrictions in place, then we need to do that.
1: And the economy? What's what's your thoughts on the long longer term play on the economy? What do you think needs to be done? In in one regard, Gabby, you're in a lucky position. You're in a you're in an industry which is, I guess, in a growth play. A lot of a lot of other industries out there in Australia are really struggling, and unemployment's getting high.
0: Yeah, look, um, you know, I am probably very fortunate to be working in the industry that I am right now. You know, defense industry is growing you know, the significant investment by the government, you know, in defence. And the pandemic has not really impacted defence the way it has many other industries and businesses. The defence of our nation doesn't stop, therefore defence industry doesn't stop. So in many ways, it's been business as usual for us through the pandemic, you know, just having to to change the way that, you know, we deliver that work probably been the biggest thing. I think the government is doing everything it can at the moment to support the Australian population. There's going to be some more challenges for us as a country, no question, and the Australian economy uh, is going to be probably going to take some time to to rebound to what it was. But at the same time, you know, if I I focus on my own industry, these defence projects that are happening, right, these big, big projects that are out there, they will transform the Australian economy the investment in defence, it's going to be a really good catalyst, if you like, for long-term economic development for our country. There's
1: a lot riding on your performance then, isn't there, Gabby?
0: Yes, there is. Um, (laughs) But, you know, as defence have said to me in the past, our success is their success. So that's why it's really important in these long-term projects that we work together as partners. I've got to deliver them a capability so that they can do their job, but I've also got to ensure that... The work that we're doing, the people that we're employing, and the significant opportunities that that we are creating by, you know, further developing Australian businesses in our supply chain, etc., are all really good, positive things, and you know that will mean a good return on investment in the future for us, and ultimately help you know, with the growth and stability of our economy.
1: Bearing in mind, BAE Systems has a big role to play. If I look at your your impressive education, Gabby, and what you've done, what you've done throughout your your career. One, how do you keep educating yourself? And secondly, in a very, I don't know, cloak and dagger world that you guys work in sometimes, how do you actually stay ahead of your competition?
0: Yeah, it's a challenge. It, it's absolutely a challenge. I'm fortunate in the education that I that I have had throughout my career, but you've got to continue that professional development through throughout your life and. So that, that means a lot of reading for me <laughs> a lot of the time. Obviously, uh, in our organisation, we have uh, lots of opportunities for, for all of our employees to, to advance their professional um, education, if you like, and to ensure that we understand what is happening on the technology side. We've got to, you know, to stay ahead of my competition, as, as you said, mm-hmm. you know, I've got to know what's happening everywhere. I've got to think about what does my customer need, not just now, but what do they need in 30 years' time? You know, so, yeah, there's a lot of reading <laughs> that goes on.
1: How do you switch off at night when you go home?
0: I don't think you can switch off when you're a CEO. I try. I do try very hard. You know, obviously I'm I'm a, I'm a mother as well of, of two young kids. And so in my downtime or, or time away from work, you know, I want to spend – all the time that I can with them you know but in in jobs like this i don't know that you ever really switch off you're sort of it's not that you're on call 24/7 but but you are if that makes sense you're always checking your email you're always thinking about what's the next challenge how am i going to overcome that you know you're thinking about your investors you're thinking about you know ensuring that you're delivering on your commitments you know to your customer but i do try to switch off and i enjoy a I, I love a glass of champagne. I love the beach. I'm fortunate to live in a in a very nice neighbourhood where I can enjoy some nice walks at night time with my kids. That's that's probably it.
1: But if I throw it the other way, why do you do the job? Yes, As you say, it's twenty four seven. What 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 drives you in it?
0: You know, I get asked this question a lot, and and it always comes back to me just saying the same thing. I love it. I love what I do. I like leading an organisation. I. If I think about this specific role mm-hmm. it's great to be back in defense industry you know working with defense because it was such a big part of my life so i'm I'm constantly wanting to ensure that we're we're doing our very best you know and I know that my team are the same they're all incredibly proud of what they do and that makes it easy to come to work when you love what you do you're proud of what you do and you know you're delivering a great capability it makes it easy to do my job. But, you know, I, I love it. I, and I, I people ask me about when I'm going to retire and things like that, and I think I don't think I, I can retire. Um, I mean, I'm sure I will one day, but um, but I, I like the challenge of business. I like thinking about how we can do things better, faster, more efficient. The ideas that come from my engineering team and the, the R&D team here are exciting. You know, something different every day which makes
1: it great. How do you keep them on the edge? What's, what do you surprise them and drop in? Do you dial up unexpectedly? What, do you, what tricks do you do to keep everybody on the edge? Because as you said, it's about keeping me particularly during COVID, keeping people engaged, focused. But you've got, it's got to be fun. It's got to be energized. And I've got to, I've got to want to work for you, Gabby. So what, what makes me want to work for you?
0: Yeah, look. I mean, I, I talked about this a little bit earlier about being authentic. You yeah. know, I think it's important for people to understand that, okay, I'm, I might be a CEO, but I'm still a person. I'm just the same as you, and I'm the same as everybody in in my company. You know, I've just got a, a busy job, if you like. You know, I still get up in the morning and have to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee to start my day. You know, I've still got kids homework to worry about, you know, all those sorts of things. I've got the same worries that everybody else has, you know, and I try to be real and I try to let people see, you know, that I'm dealing with the same issues. Like if I think about, you know, when the pandemic started and and the schools were locked down, my house was was mayhem. <laughs> it was chaotic. Me trying to to run a business with two kids doing Zooms next to me with headphones on and 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 that was that was really hard work trying to keep them occupied, ensure that they were doing what they needed to do from an education perspective, um, you know, what the school expected. And then me trying to run my job as well with my husband trying to keep us all sane and keep the house going. So I think when people see that you're like them and dealing with the same challenges, I think it makes it easier for them to relate to you. Um, Well, I hope it does. You know, and, and as I said, I, I, I want to create a good, fun environment. I want my people to be passionate about what they do and love what they do. And I'm lucky that I've got thousands of people who do. Yeah. So, you know, it's good.
1: What's the legacy going to be when you finally do depart BAE?
0: Oh, the legacy. That, you know, that, that always makes me sound like I'm old. If there's a legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, you know, what, what, what do I want to leave behind? I yes. want to leave behind a, um, a sustainable business, number one, one that is, you know, going to continue to grow, that is going to provide significant opportunities for Australians, you know, in the future. I, I want to leave knowing that we've made a great progress on continuous naval shipbuilding in Australia. You know, I, I want to see the investments that we're making now in you know, future technologies, you know, I want to see, see that come into play you know, and I want to see those capabilities being used by the Australian Defence Force. I, I want to leave behind a, a good balance sheet, if you like, for my business and I want my shareholders to know, you know that the business has got a great future ahead of it.
1: Gabby, if you were looking back at the young Gabby all those years ago when Dad was in the Army, what advice would you would you give her now?
0: Back yourself. yeah, stay stay true and and back yourself the whole way.
1: And on that, Gabby, thank you for joining us today on no limitations.
0: Thanks, thank you very much for having me.
1: You've been listening to No limitations.